5, if your Bible isn't open there already. Look at the story that Jillian read for us. This is a story about mission. It's a story about God's great love being extended. When we follow Jesus, he sometimes leads us to places like the place we read about in today's story. We've been talking lately about our purpose as a church, and we've been using a triangle to help us to picture our purpose. Part of our purpose, if we could have the first slide up, is upward. See if we can get that triangle up there. There it is. Part of our purpose is upward to know God more and to to grow, to be more like Christ, to grow up into God and to his likeness. Part of our purpose is inward to know one another better and to help one another to mature in Christ, to encourage one another, build each other up. And part of our purpose is outward through word and deed to introduce others to this Christ that we've been worshiping and thinking about this morning. But as we live out our purpose, as we live out this mission as a church, what result can we really expect? As we get to know God better and we offer Jesus our lives and our hearts, broken and diminished and wounded as they are, what result can we expect? As we point one another to Christ through Bible studies, through prayer times through discipling relationships, what result can we expect? As we go out and introduce other people to Jesus Christ, what result can we expect? Well, the story we're looking at today addresses these questions. It brings us deep into the human situation and even deeper into who Jesus Christ is. Are you ready for an incredible journey? First, the human situation. Jesus and his disciples have just taken a boat across Lake Galilee and they've landed on the far shore. They're leaving Jewish country and they're going to the Decapolis. They're entering Gentile country, foreign territory. And no sooner are they out of the boat than there's a big uh uh-oh. Have you ever walked into a situation and suddenly realized that things aren't right there at all? Maybe you took a wrong turn in a big city at night and you quickly realized you were not in the part of town you wanted to be in after dark. Or maybe it was an experience like a friend of mine had at a party one time when a young man walked into the room and my friend suddenly sensed somehow that in that guy was an oppressive dark presence. Well, this is the kind of thing that Jesus and his disciples have stumbled upon in the story. Things are not right where they've landed. They are not good. They are not safe. They are dark and evil. Look at the picture that Mark paints here. There are tombs. Tombs were considered by Jews to be unclean, defiled places. There were also places where pagan idol worship rituals often took place. There are pigs. Pigs, of course, were also considered by Jews to be unclean and detestable. Pigs were never eaten or owned or even touched by a good Jew. And there aren't just a few pigs here, are there? This place is crawling with 2,000 unclean, detestable beasts. Who owns all these pigs? What kind of operation is this? Who's eating these pigs? No doubt it's the hated Romans who, who are oppressing the Jewish people at this time. 
And now here comes this man running toward Jesus and something isn't right about him. And as he comes closer, Mark tells us about this guy. He's so strong that no one can bind him even with chains. He just breaks the chains. That's how superhumanly strong he is. No one can control this dangerous man. Why? He's possessed by demons. He lives alone in the tombs. He cries out there night and day, and he cuts himself with stones. This guy is terrifying, and he's coming straight at Jesus and his disciples. Are you getting the picture about the place that Jesus and disciples have just landed? It's enough to give you the willies. This place reeks with evil and uncleanness, with darkness and danger. This is a scene out of a rated R movie. It's worse than a graveyard on a foggy night at midnight on Halloween. Well, the picture gets even darker when you look at it through biblical eyes. If you know your Old Testament well, like Mark's first readers do, then all kinds of bells are going off by now because this scene sounds a lot like what you read about in Isaiah 65. Mark's gospel is deeply immersed in Isaiah, and this story is no different. Listen to this from Isaiah 65. I'll read from an English translation of the Greek New Testament, the Septuagint, which Mark and his readers would have had. God says, I have stretched out my hands all day to a disobedient and obstinate people who walked in a way that was not good after their sins. This is the people that provokes me continually in my presence. And then listen up as he continues. They offer sacrifices in gardens and burn incense on bricks to demons. They lie down to sleep in the tombs and in the caves for the sake of dreams. They even eat swine's flesh and the broth of their sacrifices. All their vessels are defiled. They say, depart from me, don't come near to me, for I am pure. These people have burnt incense on the mountains and defiled me on the hills. I will pay back into their laps their deeds. Demons, graves, pigs, hills, it's all there. Isaiah 65.5 even says, don't come near to me. Echoing the response of the local people to Jesus in Mark's story. It seems to me that Isaiah 65, and and to a lot of interpreters, is a backdrop that Mark has hung behind his story to help us to better understand it. In Isaiah 65, God is addressing the Jews who have returned from exile in Babylon. And they've quickly returned to their idolatries. They're holding secret vigils in tombs. They're even sacrificing pig's meat. They're flagrantly disobeying God. And Isaiah says, God is coming to punish them. Now, it seems likely that this demonized man in our story was involved in idol worship. Pagan worship of this kind was prevalent in this Gentile area where he lives. Idol worship is frequently associated with tombs and with cutting yourself and with demons. All the ways that Mark describes this man And I think against this backdrop of Isaiah 65, Mark wants us to see this man's situation as a sort of representation or embodiment of the situation of God's people in Jesus' day. 
You know, many of Jesus' miracles, while they're true on a literal level, they took place on a literal level, they also function in the process as living parables to shed light on a greater spiritual reality. When Jesus heals a blind man or curses a fig tree or turns water into wine, more is being said than just that Jesus did cool miracles. And that's true in this story as well. This story gives us deep, penetrating insight into the spiritual situation of God's people in Jesus' day. And today as well. And it gives us glorious insight into who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Mark is pointing to the situation of an unclean, detestable Gentile area with pigs and tombs and this idol-worshiping, demonized man. And he's saying to God's people, this is what you've become. You see, Mark's gospel from beginning to end presupposes that God's people are deeply steeped in idolatry and they don't even realize it. That's because by the time of Jesus, the Jews aren't worshiping statues or at pagan shrines anymore like they were back in Isaiah's time. But nevertheless, they're just as idolatrous as ever. Their new idols are just more subtle. Because an idol is, after all, any created thing that that you come to prize and, and to depend on and to need as much as the living God. And Mark 2, if if you read through, you might just want to flip back to Mark 2. As you read through the story of Jesus here, Mark begins introducing us to the idols and those who worship them. Mark referred, our Mark, not the Mark who wrote, was inspired by God to write this gospel. But our Mark referred to the story of the um, healing of the paralytic. That begins Mark 2. It introduces us to the teachers of the law, the religious experts, some of whom were closely tied to the temple. And these leaders are offended when Jesus forgives the sins of a paralyzed man. After all, forgiveness only happens at the temple. When you you sacrifice an animal on the altar to to take away your sins. And now here's Jesus forgiving sins. And and so for those teachers of the law whose power and, and legitimacy and even income depended on the temple and the sacrificial system, Jesus' claim that he could forgive sins was a great challenge. And they take offense. Then Mark introduces us to the Pharisees as you continue reading Mark 2. These zealous religious lay leaders were patriots. They longed for the freedom of the Jewish people from the oppression of Rome. And they believed that keeping God's law, radical, complete obedience to the law of Moses, is what it would take for for God to, to, to step in on behalf of his people and set them free. That's why the Pharisees were so upset when Jesus was eating with sinners and failing to fast and and healing on the Sabbath and and eating with unclean hands. He's playing fast and loose with God's holy standards. He's influencing people away from the holiness that the Pharisees think is necessary to bring about their political salvation. So Jesus begins to unmask the idols of God's people, the temple the law of Moses, the nation of Israel, and as becomes clear later in Mark, the almighty dollar too, or perhaps the almighty denarius in their day. Now, idols are tricky things. 
Because all these things, the temple, the law, etc., are good things in and of themselves. And yet these are the very things which cause God's people to miss God and to reject God when he actually comes to save them. God's people probably thought they were doing well. They had their temple rebuilt. They'd cleansed it. They, they were enacting sacrifices as the law had commanded them. They were trying their hardest to live holy lives. Uh, they, were, they were zealous and, and adhering to the law of Moses. They were ready to sacrifice their lives, many of them for the sake of their country and the, the glory of God. And yet from God's perspective, according to Mark, his people were like this demonized man. They were unclean, they were demon-infested, they were headed for death and destruction. Has it ever struck you how when Jesus comes on the scene in the gospel, demons start popping up all over the place? Right in the midst of God's people. The Jews thought that their biggest problem were the Romans who were oppressing them, but it turns out there was a, a far deeper, far more sinister enemy who was right at home among them. Don't miss the fact that the demons within this demonized man are called legion. The people of that day were familiar with legions. A legion was a military unit of close to 6,000 Roman troops. And yet here we meet an even more powerful, even more evil legion. Israel is worshiping idols instead of the true God. And as a result, powerful evil forces have moved in to occupy and to destroy them. Have things really changed that much? That's the question I think Mark wants us, his readers, to consider. What are our idols? What religious commitments do we have that actually get in the way of God's work in our lives? Or what political commitments? Or what financial commitments? I was telling the Thursday men's Bible study a couple weeks ago, a big idol that we pastors struggle with is the idol of, of religious success. We see big name pastors out there who get invited to speak all over the country. They get written up in Christianity Today magazine. They write best-selling books or, or have well-visited uh, blogs or they pastor large churches. And there's a strong temptation to want to be like them. I'll admit it. And evangelical culture encourages us pastors to aspire to that. After all, it will mean more people won to Christ and more impact in society for God. And so people cheer us on. And, and really, very often, there's an idol of fame or success lurking in our hearts. The pride of life, as one of the guys put it. And that idol is getting in the way of what Jesus really wants to do in us and through us. Well, what subtle idols are there in your heart? Have you asked God lately to show you? Have you asked a good friend or a family member or a spouse, they probably know best. <laughs> Are you afraid to ask? 
Well, Mark wants to teach us through this story how utterly dangerous and destructive the worship of idols is. Look at this demonized man. His life, his personhood are, are totally wrecked. Some of us at one time or another have been close to where this guy is. Many of us have not. But either way, we have to realize that whatever gets in the way of God in our lives is moving us in the direction of where this guy is. You know, we have a strong propensity to underestimate the ferocity and the destructiveness of evil. And so the demonized man situation is supposed to be a wake-up call for all of us. He's been invaded by a whole legion of unclean spirits. They have stolen his self-respect, his sanity, his modesty. They've made him a menace to themselves and to others. They have cut him off from other human beings. They've isolated him. They've made him unclean and defiled, living among pigs and tombs. He's not dead yet, but he's already living among the dead. And when we see what the legion does to the pigs, we see what their ultimate intention was to do to this man, too. Don't ever underestimate the, two, the true intention of the evil one or the ultimate results of evil. Chuck Colson asks, do you think evil would present itself in its true character as vicious and destructive? No. Most of the time, evil comes to us as the hand on the shoulder and the kind voice that says, let me help you. In a view from the zoo, Gary Richmond, a former zookeeper, gives an apt analogy. He says that raccoons go through a glandular change at about 24 months. After that, they often attack their owners. Since a 30-pound raccoon can be equal to a 100-pound dog in a scrap, he says, I felt compelled to mention the change coming to a pet raccoon owned by a young friend of mine, Julie. She listened politely as I explained the coming danger, and I'll never forget her answer. It'll be different for me. And she smiled as she added, Bandit wouldn't hurt me. He just wouldn't. Three months later, Julie underwent plastic surgery for facial, facial lacerations sustained when her adult raccoon attacked her for no apparent reason. Bandit was released into the wild. That's how it is with evil and with the evil one. It appears cute and harmless and even helpful. We wind up trusting it and desiring it and even worshiping it. But make no mistake about its true nature. What this legion of demons did to the man in this story is what they were trying to do to the Jewish nation of Jesus' day is what they would like to do to you and me, is what they would like to do to the people around us, at work, at school, in our neighborhood. This story gives us keen insight into the human situation. And it's dismal news. But second, this story has great news for us. It gives us keen insight into Jesus. Jesus has come. Jesus, whose very name means God's salvation. In Jesus, God has come to his idolatrous people, and instead of punishing them, he sets them free with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. 
Jesus and his disciples arrive there on the far side of the lake. There are tombs. There are pigs. There's this fierce, wild beast of a man coming straight for them. The disciples are no doubt scared silly. And then the man falls down at Jesus' feet. He recognizes instantly that Jesus is the son of the most high God. And so he seeks to protect himself from Jesus. The legion of demons recognizes or or, or that's within him recognizes that one more powerful than they has arrived. They've held sway over this man for years, no doubt, terrorizing the countryside, overpowering all who who messed with them slowly destroying this man. But now Jesus has arrived and he's ordered them to leave the man and all they can do is scramble and beg for mercy. They beg not to be sent out of the region, not to be tortured, perhaps not to be sent to everlasting destruction yet. But instead to be sent into some nearby pigs and and Jesus gives them permission and, and they go among the pigs and they cause the pigs to rush over a cliff and into the sea where they're drowned. Interestingly, pigs are not normally herd animals. Normally, pigs would scatter in all directions. But this legion has turned them into a herd and the word herd in this case can actually be translated troop as well. And that's why interpreters see in this scene an echo of the great savior drowning Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea. After all, Rome is the modern day Egypt. It's oppressing God's people in Jesus day and and God's people are longing for a new exodus like the old exodus from Egypt. They're longing for God to send a deliverer to rescue them from the oppression of Rome. And what better symbol for the pagan Roman armies, the new Egypt, than a herd of demonized pigs. And yet the real legion who oppresses God's people, the worst, turns out not to be Rome, but the forces of spiritual evil who infest God's people because of the people's idolatry and unfaithfulness to God. And yet here is Jesus come from God, not to punish his people or to destroy them, but to set them free, to restore them, to make them whole. With a word, he sends the unconquerable legions into its destruction in the sea. The pigs, at least, if not the, the demons themselves. But the point is clear. Jesus is even stronger than the unconquerable legion. By the time the locals arrive on the scene, this fierce, terrible, superhuman man who no one could subdue, even with chains and shackles, is sitting there calmly, clothed, and in his right mind. No wonder this story is closely connected to the one before it where the disciples are caught in a fierce storm on the sea. And Jesus calms the storm to a whisper with a mere word. Just as he now calms the storm in this man's soul and casts his enemies into the sea. When Jesus calms the storm on the sea, the disciples are more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. They ask, who is this man? And now the locals who who knew the demoniac and saw the change in him are rightly afraid of Jesus. 
a man far more powerful yet. Who is this man who commands a legion of demons and they obey? Now, I know we sit here from the safety of our church pews, but can you feel the terror and the drama and the power of the story? The feeling we're supposed to get here is the feeling that we have watching um, the climax of any one of a number of action movies. For example, the, the animated Star Wars movie, The Clone Wars, the couple of brave Jedi and a small band of their troops are desperately trying to hold out against a, a vast force of the dreaded evil uh, droid army. There are laser bolts flying all around, pulverizing everything they hit. And just when it looks grim for these beleaguered good guys, like, like they can't hold out much longer, the, the one Jedi, Obi-Wan, lifts up his head and he says to a nearby droid opponent, surrender, you're outnumbered. And the, the little bit of a comical moment, the pea-brain droid says, outnumbered, wait, one, two, three, four. And then the camera pans back. And you see that the sky is filled with Jedi gunships and, and troop transports. The cavalry has come to the rescue. That's what's going on in the story. In Jesus, the cavalry has arrived. And Jesus, the strong one, comes onto the scene, into this world, into our reality, not to condemn this man for his idolatry, not to condemn God's people for their idolatry, but to powerfully rescue him and them and us. To heal us, to restore us, to make us whole again. What good news. So as we close, let's notice what else Jesus the great powerful one does for this formerly demonized man. He's mightily healed and restored this man and set him free. And having reestablished or established this man's upward relationship with God, he then works on the inward. Go home to your people. And the outward, tell them how much God has done for you. So I return to my original question, if we can have our triangle up again. As we live out our purpose to connect ourselves with this great, strong, merciful Jesus, to connect one another with this Jesus, to connect the world with this Jesus, what result can we expect? My challenge for us is to go home and to look at this passage and to wrestle in your heart with what the answer really is. And then respond as you feel led. And now uh, we're going to have a few people tell a story, uh, talk about their own answer to this question, their own experience of what we can expect from the powerful Jesus. I'm trying to see if Linda is here this morning. 
She is. Okay. Linda, why don't you share first? Sometime before my season of trials, as many of you have shared with me, began, I can remember feeling that my walk with the Lord was not quite all it should be. And I didn't know why. I didn't, couldn't put a finger on it. But I do remember looking up Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And when I got to the, that part, I didn't like that. I can't remember getting up and praying each morning, Lord, hit me with those trials. But that I may know him and not only that power, that resurrection power in my life, but the fellowship of his sufferings, to share his sufferings. That part I didn't understand. Yet I wanted to know, and I wanted to know Jesus better. Who is this God? Who is Jesus? And how can I enter into that? How can I understand and embrace the power of the resurrection that was offered to me? As a child of God, often saying the verses and the, the wonderful songs we sang today and rejoicing in them, but still... It wasn't all there. But that suffering part would just keep coming back to me. How does that fit into God's plan for me? Well, I was about to find out. And the very thing I feared has become the answer to how, how I got to know him and his power and love in my life. The journey began with serious health issues that didn't seem to be able to get to get a clear diagnosis, uh, not being able to walk from point one to point two without great difficulty, being stripped of, of, of just about everything that I thought who I, I couldn't do things that I wanted to do. I couldn't take those brownies. I couldn't do anything. I was, I was stripped. Months of treating symptoms but never a diagnosis. And even when it came, full healing wasn't there. Um, not, I desperately wanted to be able to get back to normal. Verses of hope, as I, of course, searched the scripture. And, and also, I, I, I need to say, many of you were such a help along this journey uh, with all that you did here at CBC. But many verses of hope became quite a comfort to me. Romans 15:13 uh, was one of them. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Oh, I trusted him, but overflow with hope? In this, this situation, there were many things that went on that I... The overflowing with hope did not, com did not compute. How did I know that when things looked so hopeless, that 
the Holy Spirit opened the eyes of my soul to see that I needed to know that who is this God? Is he trustworthy? No matter what. What is trust? I can remember back um, at a faculty, faculty conference some years ago, we did trust trust issues, trust games, I guess they call them. And they were fine, and we did several. And then we got to this one where they had you stand on a platform, and you had ten people back here with their arms crossed, and you were to stand there and fall back into their arms. And I was the last to do that. Uh, they didn't look big enough. <laughs> um, no, I, I, just, I just couldn't. I finally did it. And I thought of that as I was as I was considering how I trust God. If I can trust them. And it, it was it, it was an experience, but not not nearly to be compared to how you trust God. As I studied the scriptures and prayed for God to reveal himself to me, it became apparent that only as I had come to the end of my own resources and world and would completely relinquish the right to run my life to him would i begin to know the wealth of the richness of his grace and mercy to me so much and i trusted the lord for salvation i trusted him for everything but there was this this suffering that takes us out of our own self-sufficiency. It's all about Jesus, as one of our psalms say. It's all about him. His love for me as his child is overwhelming. I've learned that earthly obstacles are just stepping stones to, to lead us to surrender everything to his will for us. And we all know so many verses that promise us how God is with us and for us. One of the, the verses, and I, I must read this because it meant so much to me at the time. I'm doing this without glasses. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God, in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. And another one was, though outwardly, this is in Second uh, Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since that what is seen is temporary, but what is seen is internal.